a random encounter at a broadcasting facility, a shared interest and love of all things Marvel, Excelsior, a misinterpreted program title, and behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick, podcaster and comic book enthusiast, and Eddie Wilson, upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Roy Thomas, comic book writer and editor since 1965 and co-creator of Wolverine. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the tin can and string, we are joined with Eddie. The one, the only... The Marvel writer, editor, second editor-in-chief, that is right after Stan Lee, Roy William Thomas Jr. Welcome and thank you. Oh, I'm happy to be here. I'm sorry for the long uh, name intro, but it was Not there. My whole I, name, yeah, Roy I William said, Thomas let me, I don't use that too much. My tax returns, I guess. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> it I is know. tax season. That's still... you're, not tax, you're not with the IRS, are you? <laughs> no, God forbid. already. No, God forbid okay. we're not, too. This is just wonderful okay. to be able to talk to you again. We've had you on before. Um, on the phone, I believe, and in person at at least one convention. Never on the phone. This is mm-hmm. actually the first time. Oh. We did see Roy at East Coast Comic Con, I believe, in 2018. The Jersey one. Yeah, it was about yeah. three, four years ago. Yeah. And you were actually the one that was responsible for us getting international coverage because when you had talked to us, it was discussing briefly about your cameo appearance in Daredevil season three, and then uh-huh. a random site in Italy covered us and seeing you know our names, Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson, and then just, but you know with E for and because it's Italian, you see. Yeah. So. <laughs> that was a great well, little boost that nobody expected, and uh, well, good, glad to be a part of that. That was terrific, absolutely. No, it was East Coast Comic Con, Eddie, not Terrificon. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. We love these guys. Anyway, anyway. So, Roy, first off, thank you so much for all the contributions you've given us in the realm of comics. I've been a massive fan of your work, and being able to go from the very beginnings of the Marvel era and reading the Marvel Age of Comics in the 1960s, and going even through like Marvel Unlimited and seeing the letter columns, seeing you make cameos in like the Fantastic Four letter pages is one of the coolest things. Well, I don't know. It's cool for me, too, I guess. I don't know. I, I was just uh, trying to make a living and have a good time while I was doing it. And, you know, I, I, I never, I mean, I took it seriously and working hard, but it never occurred to me it was the kind of job you'd get and keep for a long time. I never thought that far ahead. You know, I, I just took the job and figured I'd hang on for as long as I could, and then I'd go back to something else, you know. But it just never happened, really. Well, all these many years later, Roy, and so many, I don't know, milestones or significant moments throughout uh, your... Millstone is the word you're looking for. Millstone, that's it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Or is it mile markers? Maybe that's it on the highway of life. Yeah, okay. Could be. I mean, one of them I had just taken a couple little jotted notes down was um, being able to be a part of the, and going over to D.C., the 300th issue of Wonder Woman with your wife, Dan. I don't know, maybe a little highlight on that you want to touch on? Well, now you mean as opposed to you? I, I didn't know if you meant you were going to get back to it later, or should are you? No, to just say going now. Maybe we go over to we go over to there. We'll we'll go back and forth, Marvel, DC, et cetera. Okay. But for that, for one example, yeah, yeah, Wonder Woman, you know, was a book that 
where I didn't want to write Superman and Batman and told them so, and they made me do a story or two, but I got out of this as possible. I really liked the idea of writing Wonder Woman because she was just in one comic, and you know I could kind of take her. And Gene Colan was going to be the artist, and I had done things with Gene and always enjoyed that. And they were really going to big, give Wonder Woman the big push, but then as soon as they gave it the big push, they began to give us the big push. They didn't really mean to. They were just kind of heavy-handed. All of, Suddenly they, they – they, first I had to just – do a story that actually Paul Levitt's plot, it wasn't his follower, but with, with Wonder Woman and all the other female characters, and that kind of derailed our plot line. And then right after that, they cut the last six or seven pages of the book off for a Huntress feature, and that annoyed me because I, I came to write a Wonder Woman book, not a Wonder Woman feature, you know, in a book with, that also had a second feature at, at this stage. So I, after a little while, I just got disgusted at this, so I quit doing Wonder Woman, which a book I'd really wanted to do, but I said it's just become unpleasant. And so I figured that was the end of it. And then a few months later, for some reason, they came to me to write Wonder Woman 300, you know, after I'd been off the book for half a year or so. I don't know why they didn't have somebody else doing it. And uh, I thought this was a good opportunity to have a woman's name on uh, Wonder Woman for the first time, even though one or two other women had written it. So uh, uh, since I was working so much with uh, my wife, Dan, uh, who's, I guess her name was still Danette then. No, it was Dan by that time. And we... Uh, so we worked on the story together, which gave, you know, for the first time a woman got credit for writing Wonder Woman. I think also a woman got the first credit for drawing it. I think uh, Jan Dorsima drew one of the chapters in the book, so that was the first uh, woman uh, credit for uh, uh, for uh, drawing it as well, although I think there had been some female inkers of H.G. Peter back in the 40s. So, so it was kind of a couple of more milestones or millstones or whatever they are. Yeah, so significant not only in just the issue number and that's that's really that's really great that that could uh, happen come to pass and not uh, not the first i think that your wife that dan had worked on too correct um i'm trying to think if i don't remember if she'd been working with me i don't remember if she had any real maybe she didn't have any real credits by then i couldn't put her name on as fast as i wanted to but she was working with me on uh to some extent on the plots for all-star squadron and and more so on some of the other things, uh, you know, with uh, Arax, Son of Thunder, uh, was she was very heavily involved with it. In fact, it was sort of like had been her idea, that particular character, in a certain way. And then, you know, we were doing Infinity together, and we, we made up Captain Carrot, and we worked on all that stuff together, but I wasn't able to put her name on all of it. But I decided to push it on Wonder Woman because, you know, there was this advantage. Hey, it'd be good to have a woman's name on Wonder Woman for a change. And, you know, I, Time Magazine did a special on Wonder Woman not too long ago, and there's a mention that in... That issue, you know, the first female credit, even though uh, that woman named Joy Kelly or Joy Murchison or Joy Hummel, she had different names at different times in her life, actually wrote a number of stories back in the 40s, you know. But, of course, at that time, everything had the same anonymous or not pseudonymous credit of uh, Charles Bolton. And, you know, when it comes to comics of that time period of like the 1940s, 1950s, you just mentioned that, you know, they'll either not even give credit to the uh, artist and writing team or, you know, just stick to one person, like, you know, the uh, the Bob Kane kind of aspect of Batman. Mm-hmm. Why was that the case back in the day? A lot of it, I think, was just to uh, make it easier to avoid any creator feeling like he had a a stake in his, uh, in his creation. I mean, there were all kinds of things obviously pulled. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, by... By 1947, of course, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster were suing over it, so nobody wanted to get sued. That was another thing, you know, and so forth. And so they they uh, 
if you didn't have your name on the strip, it helped it, it, it helped you you know it helped them to say that you didn't really have that much of a connection. Uh, I detailed Will Murray actually that did the uh, real work on this in uh, in Alter Ego how it looks as if some of the uh, several different things uh, one artist would bring in an idea for a character and the uh, DC editor at the time you know back in this is like 1941 would would give him a different assignment and give his idea name and general concept to another artist to draw even though it was the you know it was the idea of the first artist and part of this was I think I can't prove it but I think it, part of it was a, a conscious attempt to detach people from their creation so they weren't going to have to have people you know claiming well you know I, I own a piece of this character and that uh, so forth I think they had, had they had Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster's name on the book, but at least they owned the character, and they'd had to make a deal with Bob Kane. I just think they wanted to make sure they owned everything, and they 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 wanted to, you know, uh, stop anybody from feeling very proprietary about anything they had done. But of course, when you do that, in a way, you you take away a lot of their pride too, and I think it contributed to the fact that so many golden age artists and writers then would have no pride in their craft because they weren't even allowed to put their names on it. See, this is one of the things, ladies and gentlemen, that I love about talking with Roy is I've seen Roy at different shows over the years, and he's so passionate about his love of comics, not just his own, but just the medium in general. So being able to, you know, break bread a little bit right now with Roy about comics is a real hoot for me. So thank you once again, well, Roy. Thank you. Well, I'll, I'll probably get, you know, in trouble here. Somebody will <laughs> resent that I said this, but, you know, I'm, I'm not... You know, it was a long time ago. I'm not saying those people who did that were evil. They were sort of doing what they thought they were supposed to do at the time, you know. And, and by the, but, but it kind of came out in the wash, you know. And then there's, there's, there are certain things that resemble smoking gun that shows that this was done at least a couple of times, especially in 41. And by the way, you mentioned uh, briefly real quick uh, in passing uh, Alter Ego, your uh, magazine. Over by us, uh, our local comic shop, Main Street Comics, they just did a little bit of a move. And he pulled out a bunch of issues of uh, Alter Ego out of the back that, you know, they're so cool to see. And there's a lot of love in craft in what you guys do in Alter Ego, a publication that is still going to this day and releasing fantastic content. Issue number 174 is about to come out. That's when you consider that I didn't know, you know, if we, I had enough material to fill a quarterly magazine back in 1999, uh, I guess, I guess I, I answered that question. You know, <laughs> although again, I don't fill it. You know, I mean, I do part of it, but I have a, such a, a nice, you know, informal grouping of, uh, of, you know, other uh, creative people. You know, what are some of who are probably professionals, some of whom are not, but who are passionate about it. And, I just give each of them their little department, or they can, you know, do interviews and things, and I handle the rest of it. And it's it's kind of a, you know, it it says on this cover, you know, Roy Thomas's comic fanzine, but you know, there's several other people that are, you know, quite important to it. And but we all, and the one thing we all share is every, nobody's doing it for the money. Trust me, nobody's <laughs> doing it for the money. But uh, uh, you know, they, they do it because they love comics. P.C. Hammerlick loves Fawcett comics. He does things about that. Michael T. Gilbert likes to do all kinds of crazy things. So he has his comics crypt. The late Bill Shelley loved to uh, uh, do the history of comics fanzine. I, a number of interviewers, uh, in particular Jim Amish, who used to interview the Golden Age people, and now Richard Arndt, who does the uh, many of the interviews, and a few other people in between. I mentioned Will Murray and there are a number of others. They just... You know, they tell me who they want to interview, or they come up with something they want to write about, and I see if it 
sort of fits, you know, with the uh, with the thing. Is it something we haven't already covered that much, and we or we can get a new angle on it and so forth, you know, and got to balance off Marvel and DC and other things and so forth. And you know, it's it's a challenge, and it takes a lot more work than it's ever likely to uh, <laughs> to pay me, but. It's kind of hard to, uh, to, to let go of. I, I figure I'll do it as long as I can. And so far, as I said, I'm now, you know, uh, about to start proofreading issue number 176 tomorrow. So, but I, and it's uh, staggering to me to think that I've done that many of them. I, I'll grant you. And they're cool, you know, publications just in general, especially the eye-catching covers. You know, like I said, the uh, issues that had been pulled out of the back and brought out front again. There's mm-hmm. like some random issues in there of. The fa- like pertain to Fawcett Comics and a lot of Captain mm-hmm. Marvel stuff. Yeah, gorgeous looking designs. Especially there's one where it's like painted, like the painted looking. Uh, who's the artist who does the painted Captain Marvel Junior ones? Well, that that's probably both those covers. There's the one with Captain Marvel with his arms out and Shazam's in the background, and then there was the one with uh, Captain Marvel Junior fighting Captain Nazi, and both <laughs> both those were painted uh, not for me, but I own them both. And, and I had permission to use them. He's, unfortunately, passed away. Now it was Don Newton, very talented young guy who was going to be the Infinity or Income in, Incorporated artist. And then he did like one issue or so, and then passed away rather young. There's, there's just but, some uh, gorgeous he, looking he, covers. He hadn't done it. He just did them for his own pleasure and so forth. And people sometimes come, hey, I did this painting or I did this drawing. Jerry Ardway is. See, we can't really commission covers. We did a little in the past, but. DC and Marvel don't want us to commission new art because, you know, we're not Marvel, we're not DC. But if we find something that's already done, that a guy has done independently as a piece of commission, they won't interfere with our doing it as long as we don't commission it. So, you know, if there's a drawing, Jerry Ardway is that a drawing, and I see it, I think, can I use this as a cover? And, uh, you know, yeah, even uh, Jack Kirby, uh, yeah, my manager and friend uh, uh, John Cimino here, he's reminded me because he spotted this uh, – Never, never uh, published uh, Jack Kirby drawing of Jack Kirby and the Thing and what Doctor Doom and the Red Skull. It had never been published. It was just perfect. And the Thing is my favorite Marvel character anyway, and it was just wonderful. And so I finally had a Kirby issue. I'd always been wanting to, but I kept saying, "Well, we got you know the mag, the other magazine that's accompanying the main one is the Jack Kirby Collector." So I never did a Kirby issue. But once I saw this cover, I said, "I got to do a Kirby issue. I've always wanted to do one anyway." So. I did one, but again, it was just like a lucky find of the a cover that had been in existence at least for thirty years, right? Had to be at least thirty or so years, and all of a sudden, it's never been seen. Now it's on a few thousand copies of a magazine, and it's in color, and you know, I'm real happy about it. You know, to have another piece of Jack Kirby artwork see the light of day. Well, Roy, I didn't expect that we'd get a favorite um, because a lot of people that we do talk to don't necessarily have. A favorite character that they've worked on because it's all what they did and what they created. But that's great to know the thing. Um, but going to well, I mean, actually, the character I most enjoyed writing at Marvel, although the thing was uh, maybe second, was Conan. Mm. But you know, he's sort of a Marvel character and sort of isn't, depending on how you count him. How weird is it to see Conan back in the Marvel fold? Well, it's a little strange. I didn't really care much one way or the other if I wasn't going to write it. You know, my I have two interests in Conan. Uh, or at least I always feel like it. One was I love reading Robert E. Howard. You know, I, I, not necessarily the pastiches as much or other people's, but I liked Robert E. Howard's writing. I, I'm not a fan of sword and sorcery per se, but I like Howard's writing at its best. Uh, and the other thing, you know, was that, you know, I thought, well, maybe they'll 
reprint some of my work, or they're doing a wonderful, beautiful job of printing that, much better than Dark Horse had done and much better than I expected anybody to do, so I'm delighted about that. Otherwise, you know, I didn't really care if, if Conan is back at Marvel or not if I'm not writing it. I wrote one or two stories and everything, but my, you know, I, I'm interested in Robert E. Howard, and I'm interested in writing Conan, but I'm not interested in reading other comic writers' versions of Conan. They may be good, they may be bad, but I'm just... You know, I'm not really interested in it, mm-hmm. so I don't read any of this. I, I read the first few when it was, I, they had me write a Conan story or two, but as soon as the that was over, I uh, you know I stopped reading the Conan comics because you know I'm only interested in Conan as, as either writing it or, or reading Robert E. Howard. One thing, though, that I really get a kick out of in regards to Conan, we had uh, Marvel writer Jim Zub on last year, and he mentioned that he had talked to you about, you know, he's going to be doing the full-time gig on the title, and I believe you had mentioned something to the effect of the uh, Conan uh, fraternity or, like, the, the the group of Conan writers. No, I, I, there's no fraternity of Conan writers uh, that I know of. Yeah. I, I'm afraid I'm afraid maybe we... Maybe there was a language barrier. <laughs> <laughs> but, Could be. No, I mean, I, you know, I, you know I, I, well, you know, there... As far as I was concerned, you know, Robert E. Howard, who died four years before I was born, and I'm interested in, in writing, but I got nothing against the other people who wrote Conan, uh, none of them. But, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't interested in, you know, I mean, if, if we had a panel, we could discuss writing Conan or something, but otherwise, nah, you know, I, I just want to write it. I wouldn't let anybody else write Conan. I wasn't interested in any fraternity of Conan writers. I was what I was going to be the Conan writer. Everybody else could go write some other character. Let them line up some character from Marvel or make up a character or whatever and then, and then write it. And I, I would take Conan, you know. Josh the Barbarian. <laughs> Josh the Barbarian, okay. Uh, Roy, with being the co-creator of, I'm going to say, over 30 characters, and maybe you've been asked this before, so here 30, it is again. 30, a little um, more than that, I think. I would think, yeah, <laughs> I'm on the low side. You that John put together is a little more than 30, although some of them are pretty minor. Yeah, well, are there, any, really. yeah, are there any that come to mind that... Um, you know, you, you worked on, co-created, like I said, and thought that it would do better than it did or took off and really did much better than you thought it would, or yeah. and, you know, vice well, of versa. Course, of course, this, yeah, like some do about what you think they might or maybe a little better, like the Vision, you know, or Ultra, you know, and so forth. But the, the one character, of course, that was not exactly a throwaway character, but that I never thought would amount to that much when I made up the basic concept, of course, was Wolverine. Mm-hmm. Because he was just intended to sell a few extra comics in Canada, you know, to be an extra hero. And I had specific ideas about what he was, short and fierce and that name in Canadian. But other than that, I let, you know, Len Wein and the artist, you know, Herb Trippi and John Romita designed the character. And that was, you know, up to them, and I didn't care too much. But it really was kind of amazing to see what Wolverine became, uh, you know, not just due to my part, but, uh, but also, you know, Len, Herb, and then later on, uh, Chris Claremont and uh, Dave Cochran. It, but it just everybody you know, contributed something to it, and the character just kept growing until he became one of the you know, most famous and best-loved uh, Marvel characters. And I would never have thought that back in 1974 when we were just trying to put a thing out to grab a few people in Ottawa you know, to, to make them uh, buy our comics. And one, one character, though, over the last few years that has really blown up more so since the initial cinematic portrayal and now you know last year with the character showing up on the small screen on disney plus vision did you expect to see the character of vision have the reaction the fandom has nowadays thanks in part to you know series like wandavision 
No, I, I never, I, I never expected to see the Vision in a movie, even when they made like, you know, they were going to make an Avengers movie. I just figured they'd never get around to the Vision and everything. And that, that all seems to come down to the director, writer, you know, Joss Whedon, who evidently told them when he did this first movie that he did the second one, it was going to be about Ultron and the Vision. And, uh, you know, bless his heart, he, he did it, and he did it very well. I loved the, what he did with both Ultron and the Vision. I love the acting uh, and the way the way he looked. It's not exactly the same as in the comic, but he had the same spirit. Ultron and the Vision were basically true to the to you know in a, in a different way, but they were basically true to the spirit of the comics and just carried it off in a new direction. And I was delighted. I was disappointed that I never really felt they they didn't have him stay around long enough to to do that much with though. I mean, he appears in a little bit of uh, what Civil War. Yeah. You know, and so forth. He fights a little bit, but, you know, you hardly see him do anything after he's in the latter part only of uh, Age of Ultron. And then the next time he appears, he gets wiped out without doing anything at the beginning of uh, uh, Avengers Infinity War. You know, he's just a victim then. And I like that, but I would have liked to see another movie where he got a chance to really be a, play a hero at more for more than a few minutes, you know, fighting at the airport, you know, <laughs> and everything. Uh, but then once he was gone, I loved the uh, the WandaVision concept that that uh, brought him back, even though it was you know sort of you know I, I sort of suspected from near the beginning that this was something in Wanda's mind or something. And mm. I'm hoping I'm hoping to see more of him because I feel like I really feel like he was uh, in spite of the fact that he had half of his own series and was in a few movies. I really feel he was kind of underutilized and deserves to come back and you know and and be more prominent. I don't care if he's if it's the green and yellow version or if it's the white version or whatever, it's the same character. I feel like, you know, ever since the reaction to the show of WandaVision, they, they'd they be, you know, ridiculous if they don't bring him back. They have to bring him back based on that positive yeah. reaction. Yeah, I'm kind of, you know, yeah, I, I, I know they're really playing up Scarlet Witch now and so forth, and that's fine. But, I, you know, I'm kind of disappointed that somehow that the vision has, been, has kind of dropped by the, the waist. I mean, it's their business. I'm not angry about it. I'm just... Disappointed because I think that the Vision is a better character than a lot of the ones they're emphasizing, and I think they could really do something more with him if they bring him back. Maybe and maybe they do have plans to do it, you know, uh, because they're certainly they left the door open to bring that, especially that White Vision, you know, back and so forth. And I hope they do, and I hope the same, you know, actor. What's his name? Uh, uh, Paul Bettany. Uh, yes, and he's because he's just marvelous. Uh, he has the right. Feeling. I mean, because they they really captured the feeling by casting him because you know he's not a muscle man. The Vision can be drawn muscular in the comics to some extent, but he's not a muscle man like even Captain America, let alone uh, you know the Hulk or Thor. So I think it was really wonderful. And WandaVision was such an inventive show, much more so. You know, I mean, Marvel has some nice shows on TV. I guess people really like Loki, which I never really quite finished watching yet. I will one of these days. I like the the general idea, but it just kind of lost me somewhere along the line. But one division I thought was you know just great. You know, trying to figure out where it was going and seeing all the the, the you know the little jokes and things along the way and the recasting of Quicksilver and just different things. It was a, a very inventive show. It was must see TV in TV and uh, in movies. They they haven't got the respect they. Deserve. I was thinking about when you know they pass over uh, a huge picture like Spider-Man: No Way Home, you know, in favor of a bunch of things nobody ever heard of or wants to go to see. Mm -hmm. And I, it, it's not just because it was a blockbuster, but because I've seen it twice, 
And uh, that's a good, that's a really good movie. I, I can't believe there are eight or ten other pictures that year that deserve nomination more than Spider-Man: Far From Home. And it's it's funny so also. I won't be watching the Oscar, Oscars yet again this year. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny too though because in regards to WandaVision, just the reaction where people still, even myself, still talking about this show over a year later, and it's the impact and it's of the quality of the writing and the mystery every episode gave us. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, I, well, I, I think generally speaking, you know, uh, Feige and the uh, the people working with him have handled have handled uh, things, you know, because they have exactly the opposite problem to the one that Stan had. Stan started off with, like, what, one book and then two books and then three books and slowly over a period of years built the Marvel Universe and other people building it after him. What Feige and the Marvel Studios have is they have this huge group of characters already created, and they have to winnow it down through a funnel mm-hmm. see what little can come out. You know, you could only, even if you have one character, you could only use one aspect or one phase of his life, you know, because even the, you know, even, even the Hulk has only been in, you know, what, a handful of movies, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, but he's been in hundreds and thousands of comics. It's a cliche kind of question to ask, but what of your creations, which one would you love to see make the jump to the big screen finally that, you know, hasn't? Well, I, yeah, that hasn't. I mean, I've been happy with the ones who have. Um, you know, the uh, some of them have been strange little ones, like in the – didn't they use the timekeepers in Loki in a way? I mean, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if they – you know, that was that was a, uh, a thing that I think uh, – I think, uh, you know, it, it was at least partly made up by Jean-Marc Lapissier and myself. Uh, for a comic and so forth. And, and uh, they're going to use what? Uh, well, you know, although it was really Steve Englehart and Frank Brenner who did all the wondrous things with it, but when I had started, when they had started the Doctor Strange uh, series again back in the early 70s, you know, I had, we, I, I wanted to give it a Lovecraftian feel. I had just recently discovered H.P. Lovecraft and, of course, a little before that, Robert E. Howard. So I gave him this name that's used like one time in one little story. It's called Shuma Gorath, and Steve and uh, uh, Frank turned it into, you know, a major god creature in their, their series, and now I guess they're using the name of another creation, one that Marie Severin and I did, called Gargantos, because Shuma Gorath being a Robert E. Howard name, they can't use that, so Gargantos is the, uh, the name, but that's, you know, another co-creation of mine and Marie's, that's another octopus, just another one of your usual octopus deities, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And that's it's kind of fun to see all these minor characters. Who would have thought Gargantos or Shumagarath or the Timekeepers would, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you knew right that Gargantos is in Doctor Strange too, right? Yes. In place of, of Shumagarath, just want to make sure that was clear. Oh. So uh, it, it was, you know. So uh, it's it's interesting to see all these uh, strange things. Some sometimes, you know, uh, I haven't been really disappointed in any of the characters. Sometimes they are handled quite differently. From the way I would, sometimes they're handled very well. But I've liked all of them. I, I like I like the uh, Iron Fist. That wasn't the most popular show, but I thought the actor and the general feel of it was pretty good. I, I liked seeing what they did with Luke Cage, another character I had helped create with uh, you know Stan and Archie Goodwin. And uh, you know, it's just just nice to see these things. And sometimes they do better than others, but that's really a matter of opinion. I'm just I'm happy to see them do it. It's I never would have thought so many characters of fans, let alone of mine, (laughs) would have been on the screen. This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. 
And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage, where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And... Two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. It's funny because, you know, you look over at the distinguished competition, DC, and like they'll bring in characters, like the most obscure ones. Like you look right now at James Gunn's uh, Peacemaker, and there's characters such as Judo Master, Vigilante. And it got me going down the uh, rabbit hole of reading DC comics from the 1980s because on our show, mm-hmm. we're going to be doing a uh, special Patreon bonus episode where we're covering Crisis on Infinite Earths. And in turn, I'm reading so many different titles from that era, including your All Star Squadron. And, you know, being able to experience this kind of stuff, I love seeing that era of DC especially. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Peacemaker, this obscure Charlton character, you know, that even his co-creator, Pete Barisi, who did the Thunderbolt character, you know, thought was like one of the worst characters ever. And here he is. He's got, I see his his name and face on the cover of uh, a national magazine this last week, whatever it was, some sort of magazine that was also covering Morbius and so forth. But obviously, of course, the character I have the most hope for in some ways, I mean, just from a personal viewpoint, is I, I just love the idea that they finally made a, a movie with a character, you know, in which the name of the character, not even just the, like the Age of Ultron subtitle, but the movie is actually named after a character that I, you know, co-created, that Gil Kane's and my uh, Morbius. That's been delayed for a year or two, but I'm really, you know, looking forward to that. I would love to. I got to admit, even more than most things, I would love to see that become a, a mega hit, to become a, a huge. I would love to see Morbius become a you know a household name, you know, which of course it never has been. And and but uh, you know it's kind of funny. I didn't do that much work for DC. I worked for them for about a half a dozen years steadily, and a little trickling after that. And yet, you know, the, the various characters that I made up, along with actually my my wife Dan informally, and with Jerry Hardway and Mike Macklin. Uh, for the Infinity Incorporated, they seem to be all over the map now, right? Yeah. I mean, four or five or six of them. Some of them, you know, have, or have been in uh, the Star Girl series. You know, Jade and a new Doctor Midnight and Hour Man and these things. And then, of course, uh, Nuclon, uh, who got renamed uh, Adam Smasher, a name I do not think fits him at all. But uh, you know, but the same character as now what he's going to appear in the black adam movie as sort of the second sort of like i don't know the sidekick or buddy to the hero and the superhero in his own right i don't know what i guess black adam and nuclon or adam smasher got put together at some stage you know maybe in the jsa book or something and so it's it's weird to see even even you know even dc characters <laughs> are popping uh, of mine are popping up and i didn't do that many of them for sure Real quick, uh, Adam Smasher, he also made an appearance in the uh, Flash TV show on the CW, correct? I don't know. I've never seen the Flash CD. I keep meaning to watch it. Because I think I've he, never seen him. I yeah, think I, he I, did. He may have. Yeah, and that was uh, portrayed by the... It was uh, Bolt. It was a character from Young All-Stars. But that was on the Legends of Tomorrow series, I think. Yeah, that's the twin brother of Jade. So 
she seems to mention something about him, so Obsidian may pop up with Jade later in uh, Stargirl. At least I think that's what they're hitting at. I guess uh, you know Jeff Johns kind of liked those characters. Uh, I, I sort of wish I sort of wish I had a credit on the show. You know, just a little tiny credit to me and Jerry and and, and Mike at, at least, the official you know co-creators of some of these characters. It'd be kind of nice if you know Marvel mentions our names on the show, even though you can't see it. DC doesn't seem to do that, and it's a shame. Well, going to that before well, I, totally I hear even f- Mr. Bones from Infinity is going to oh. be on there or was was mentioned was was he mentioned in the Star Girl series? You know, I heard that he was going to be or something. No, not sure. Anyway, oh, anyway, yeah. Mind. On so my I end, I'm, I I follow more of the uh, DC uh, movies and the uh, the uh, HBO shows, whereas Eddie, mm-hmm. I believe, follows more of the CW stuff than I, yeah, I well, had. Yeah, keep up with everything. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, it is it is an undertaking. I yep. did try. What, when, when I was watching Stargirl, the first, the second season or whatever, I tried watching one episode of Supergirl, but I'll never make that mistake again. It, it's There's so many interweaving plot lines at this point. You need, like, pie charts. You need line graphs. You need everything. Someone yeah. needs to get Jonathan Hickman on the phone. Just bring out a bunch of charts. Help us out. <laughs> You know, Stargirl's complicated enough, but at least, you know, I kind of try to keep up with it. But in the, getting in the middle of Supergirl, my God, I mean, it, it, I couldn't even figure out who she was, let alone any of the other characters. But anyway, you know, but there's, there's a lot of good stuff, and uh, it's kind of a matter of opinion any, anyway. But it's it's nice to see it. I never wanted and still don't want superheroes to take over the world, but it's nice to see them have a little bitch. I know the movie critics really kind of hate them, and, they, and, and most of them really would like to see all these movies go away, and they want to see it all go back to, uh, you know, to, to the interhuman drama and all that. And you know, I've, I'm in favor of that. I like that kind of movie too. But there's nothing wrong with uh, if you're going to have Mission Impossible and you're going to have James Bond and you're going to have Star Trek and Star Wars. I don't see anything very I don't see anything very different from that in the, Mar- the better Marvel and DC movies, and some of those. A number of the Marvel movies, and at least one DC movie, Wonder Woman, which is the only one that I've really liked that much uh, since you know, in years since the first Superman or two. Going to the uh, movies is so, like, well, going to the movies like is like going to the circus. Like, there's so many different things where you can be able to experience. Right. You have you know the uh, tightrope walker, you have the clown, you have the lion yeah. tamer. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah, I hate to see people like Scorsese, one of my you know very favorite directors. You know, and, and some of these people, you know, act like these aren't even really movies. Uh, no, yeah, they're movie. They're they're movie, Marty. They're just a different kind of movie from, you know, from what you want to see. But you know, not everybody wants to see your movies. Not everybody wants to see those movies. It's it's a it's a, it's a, it's a big tent, like I said, a circus. With think, three rings, or, or maybe more than three rings. I think the group War said it best. Why can't we be friends? Well, we know why. <laughs> <laughs> we're all humans, and we hate, kill each other. <laughs> DC and Marvel are bad enough. Oh my God! <laughs> When's there going to be a battle between Star Wars and Star Trek? I'd, I'd pay to see that too. Same. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, Roy, with uh, with these so characters, we've never had a talk about All Star Squadron, so yep. maybe we won't get a chance to talk about them. I don't know. You know what? If they go ahead and do something with that, I would guess, like with other characters you've co-created, you're being consulted to some degree and/or credited, whether it's TV or movie. I, I never. No, I never get consulted on anything, Marvel or DC, then I don't really care that much, you know. The, the only consultation, the closest thing to a consultation I ever had was when Jared Leto called me from London while they were making Morbius a year or two ago. He had arranged the time in advance, and we, we chatted for about 10 minutes and, you know, and so forth, and he was asking me about my feeling when I created the character, and I asked him about the teeth, you know, which he said, well, I don't have to wear any false teeth, it's all digital, you know, so he doesn't have to wear 
you know, false fangs like uh, Christopher Lee did. But other than that, that's the closest thing I ever came to being insulted. But that's all right. You know, I, I got my cameo in Daredevil, and I get little checks from time to time, you know, and so forth. And uh, I'm just, I'm very happy to see them on the screen, to see my characters and Stans and Kirby's and, you know, and these other people. And I hope, you know, that, you know, they feel the same way about them, even if they don't always like what's done with them. Well, I think I'm going to speak for both of us. It would be a hoot, like Peter says, Aww. if we saw you in a cameo. In more than just Daredevil, in in well, some major well, picture. I, I don't have Kevin Feige's address at hand, but if you find it, we write him and tell him the same, because I absolutely definitely feel I should have a cameo, and I want one, and Marvel knows it. But, you know, they did give me the one in, uh, you know, in an episode of Daredevil, and I, I appreciate that, and I enjoyed it. I think I should have a cameo in a movie. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not shy about that. One of the ones, I, I could have been in Ultron. I could have been in Morbius, so that's not a movie, Marvel movie per se, so... Marvel right, Studios so you're up for it. Control that. It'd be nice. You well, know. you know, and we're also seeing back when we saw these regularly and went to conventions regularly, and you were out there, you know, doing the signing, doing the photos, and being on panels. Is there anything in particular with respect to talking to the fans that you liked to or would like to impart? Whether you know some knowledge that you've learned, you want to pass on. Um, any anything that comes to mind that you? Nah, <laughs> I let my story, you know, speak for me. You know. Yeah. Not, but I just answer questions. I don't have any particular wisdom. If somebody has a question, I'll I'll answer it. Um, Again, that is the thing. You I talk love... about the All Star Squadron now. Hell yeah! Are we, are we done with that? <laughs> yeah, we you get, go right back. To, that's we fine. Got five minutes left. We should get to the topic, I guess. And so Absolutely. Well, no, I've enjoyed the. I, I'm just kidding. I, I've enjoyed the conversation. I don't really care what we talk about. You know, it's up to you. Well, I would like to talk about All Star Squadron. <laughs> like, there's just so much fun stuff about that era of comics, and you know. I feel like one of the best things you you did work on Invaders, if I remember correctly, correct? Yes. Yeah. And you know you've now done both Marvel, you've done Marvel and the Distinguished Competition in that World War II era. And what is like the biggest difference in between both kind of team lineups in terms, or not in lineups, but in terms of team dynamic and structure kind of stuff for both companies? Well, there wouldn't have had to be that much of one because I, I controlled it and I could have made them much more alike. What I saw, though, was that, you know, Marvel had its dynamic with the, uh, well, you know, the, the big three of the 40s were Captain America, Submariner, and the Human Torch. So they, they became a focus of the book. And other characters, the, the new ones I made up, like Union Jack and Spitfire, or the old ones that I dragged in, like Miss America and the Wizard and others. Uh, but it was... Really, it was really all built around this nucleus of three characters. That's what I sold Stan on in 1974 when I got the concept approved, and I stayed pretty faithful to that through the whole time. When I got to D.C., it was different in this sense. D.C., A, it had even more characters than Marvel and more, you know, more really good ones uh, and so forth. Uh, and so I, I – but they had already been put into groups, unlike – Marvel, which, uh, you know, they just had, what, two issues of the all-winner squad in the 40s uh, that, uh, you know, kind of a failed experiment. But D.C., you know, had it. Everybody knew, uh, you know, the Justice Society of America because that had already been, you know, a, you know, around for a number of times and it had its own series. So I uh, – and I thought, well, you know, they had just canceled the Justice Society series. So I thought, well, you know, if I revive that, it's – as much as I love the Justice Society, it's just like bringing back a book that just died and try to do it in a different way. And I wouldn't have of doing that. But I got this idea. By that time, I, I, 
by the, by that time, by the time I went to D.C., I had basically lost interest in commercial comics and writing commercial comics. I, w- I was hoping they'd be commercial enough that they would sell well enough to let me keep writing them. But I otherwise, I wasn't that interested in trying to have the biggest blockbusting buster selling and anything like that, you know, even though there was money involved. I just wanted to do sort of what I wanted to do and, you know, in the subject matter that I liked. And, I, and everything, and I thought it would be fun to do another World War II comic, so I talked DC to doing All-Star Squadron, uh, which was, you know, a concept I made up, uh, and I talked him into it, I guess, because Justice Society had just been canceled, and, and it was quite a, it was a reasonably successful book for a while. It ran almost 70 issues, and then had 30 issues or so of young All-Stars, and if it hadn't been for that damn crisis on Infinite Earth, you know, it would, uh, All-Star Squadron would still probably be going. Uh, for the last uh, 20 or 30 years, and we might even be up to 1943 by now. Who knows? Wow. Now, real quick, before we wrap this episode up, because I like doing a little bit of uh, promotion and whatnot, you have the Marvel Age of Comics released by Tashin Books, and it is further proof, you know, books like that, how much of a well of knowledge of the realm of comics you are. And we cannot recommend that book enough. Well, thank you, but of course I had to do a lot of research for it. I mean, I didn't know all that stuff, especially one of the problems with, with me is that once it gets past the middle 70s or so, with um, the time, say about the time I quit being editor-in-chief, I, I, I didn't stop reading comics, but I really cut down on it uh, in, in terms of reading, you know, current comic books. I read a, a few of, uh, you know, my I loved writing them still, and, you know, and so forth, but I just didn't really feel like following them anymore. I'd had a... You know, I'd had by that time about, uh, you know, 10, 10 or so years of uh, involved in the thing. So I, I just wanted to kind of do my own thing at that stage. Uh, and uh, so I had to, you know, do a lot of research for that book after 1974. <laughs> you know, you ask me what something that happened in Marvel in the 90s, it may as well have happened on the dark side of the moon. <laughs> and that doesn't mean it wasn't good. It just means that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't following it because I was uh, – you know, in my 50s, and I just didn't feel like following the, the same comics, you know. And I, But I do love the farm, you know. I love the idea of comic books, of, of graphic novels, of, you know, of comic strips. I mean, I just love all the various forms of it. And so it was a, it was a real honor when Stan uh, was the one who recommended. I think he was supposed to write the book or something, but he wasn't going to write it, but he recommended me to write it and then later to write... Uh, you know, the Stan Lee story, which covered a lot of the same ground from a different angle. And I had a great time working with the Tasha people in those two books, but I had to have a lot of help on the stuff from the 80s and 90s and after, you know. Their books but are I'm absolutely gorgeous. It worked out okay. I, the parts I really enjoyed working on were the parts from the 40s all up through, you know, the 60s and 70s. After that, you know, I mean, I have to be a professional, but my own personal interest kind of flags after that stage. All right, Roy, thank you so much for your time and the ability to speak with you today. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad we had all this time with this in-depth discussion of the All-Star Squad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we kind of got a little digressed here, you know, and uh, okay, because it's all it's all you know, part of the same thing. We're all enthusiastic about so many different aspects. Of Absolutely. Comedy, right? right, right. Yeah, we'll get to if we do it. Continuum, you know. If we do an all-star squadron episode, we'll be breaking down each character one by one. It'll be, you know, that really... sounds painful for them. That's how well, many episodes is that going to be? That's going to be fifty or sixty episodes, especially <laughs> if you include the quality and Fawcett characters. Something to look forward to. That's right. <laughs> and but... even Judo Master yeah. was going to be in it eventually. 
I, I tell you what, though, and I did get you to sign my copy of the hardcover of the Marvel Age of Comics, and it's a great coffee table book, and it's gorgeous yeah. inside and out. I mean, so many yeah. first, uh, you know, first appearance things on the inside cover, back cover, just learning a lot of stuff by by that. And well, uh, on a, yeah, do you have a copy of? Uh... The uh, the book I did for tomorrow is the All Star Companion Volume Two, which deals mostly with the All Star Co- Squadron. That's a more recent one, I would think. I love no, tomorrow. No, that was about God, that was about two thousand and six or so. I gotta go look in. Yeah, okay. I'm gonna hunt for it too. Yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 not entirely, but it's mostly about that. It has like uh, you know background. It it has it has backstories and, and inside information on every single issue, issue by issue of All Star Squadron, and then it has a section from A to Z from Aquaman to Zatara of every character that was in that or was about to be in it or be, you know, why this character or that character, like Kid Eternity, never quite showed up or something, you know. But you might get a kick out of it if you like that because there's a hundred or two pages of All-Star Squadron, probably the closest compendium anybody's ever going to have to that book uh, in it. And I, I particularly wanted to do that because that was my favorite. As much as I liked writing the Avengers and Conan and Invaders and any number of other books. Uh, the book I enjoyed writing the most, you know, would have loved to go on writing for all my life was All-Star Squadron. Well, we're going to have to make a homework assignment, get a copy of that, and then we'll get back to you, you and we'll discuss it. that exclusively. I don't get any, I'm not saying that because I get any money out of it. I, no. Anymore. It, it, it probably cost you three bucks on the back market, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> what? It, it's good, though. It has a wonderful cover by Carlos uh, Pacheco. So it's, uh, you'll, you'll like it, I think. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Roy Thomas. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior.